Scorcher of a weekend. Um, I opted not to barbecue. Uh, we, ordered, we ordered in. Uh, I live in New York, at least for the next few weeks at least, as uh, my wife and I are finishing up our fifth year there and uh, transitioning to, uh, to the Mitten, uh, the great state of Michigan. Um, that being said, last night, <laughs> last night was interesting. I, uh, parents, I think you can probably relate to this. I was taking my three-year-old, Eloise, um, out of the tub, and um, there was a transition that happened, a sort of exchange. As I took her out, my phone decided to slip in. And, uh, and that was followed immediately by, by me going to, um, to read to her in bed. She, she stays in our bed to read, and then she goes and gets in, in her room. And uh, I went to... Uh, so if you've lived in... How many of you have lived in New York? Like, you get storage issues, right? You get that? So, like, even under your bed becomes another closet, so you buy plastic posts of which to put your bed upon so that you can put stuff under. So I'm going to sit... You know where this is going, and... And my, the po- it just goes straight through the plastic post. And so, um, so last night was humbling, to say the least. It was one of those nights. Um, for the past two weeks, uh, I've been teaching some stories that, that Jesus told to get his message across. And they're, what's, they're what are known as parables. And they're basically ways in which truth is packaged in the form of subversive stories that we're not good as humans with most of us aren't good at memorizing data as much as we are good in the way our brains are wired to take stories and to have the arc of a narrative of a plot, a climax, and a resolution. And then to have those kick around our souls for the rest of our life and to come up in different seasons. Oh yeah, maybe that's what Jesus meant when he talked about that. Or maybe that's what Jesus meant when he talked about her or him or the stone, or whatever it was that Jesus was telling us. So this morning, we're going to look at a parable called the mustard seed, which I think to his hearers must have been a very disappointing teaching. Let's go ahead and take a read of this text. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what should I compare it? That's like a heightened expectation, like, yes, I'm listening, tell me, what is that like? All of human history has been longing to know, so tell us, Jesus, your thoughts on that. It's like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made its nests in, their, in its branches. I think in all of life, we subconsciously carry around this thing in our heart and in our mind and in our body. And it's called expectations, right? About our jobs, about our families, about romance, about roommates, about prom and college and retirement and tenure and promotion ad infinitum. These largely bring us hope We go into things, I think maybe more than any time in human history, the last several hundred years in the Western Hemisphere, I think we have, we're we're basically by and large an optimistic people. We think very optimistically about our future and about where it's headed, about possibilities, about what could come into being. And for the most part, I think this is really good. This is a good thing. This brings sort of air into our lungs. It brings lifts to our sails. It gives us the opportunity to to dream about what could be in life and to then move toward that becoming a possibility. But at the same time, there's this other dynamic at play. So we have all of these 
expectations, but simultaneously, we also have this weird dynamic called reality, right? Which isn't always in alignment with our expectation. When the promotion doesn't happen, when the relationship doesn't pan out, when retirement never seems to come, when college, the college diploma is met with significant debt, and so on and so forth. And so what you're left with, with this expectation reality thing happening and these things, there's all of this building up, what you're left with often is this gap called disappointment, disillusionment, disenchantment. And I want to suggest this morning that that can be true spiritually as well. Not just about sort of things happening in your life, which are all spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Everything is charged with divine impulse, no matter what it is. But the way in which we view our life with God, the way in which we view how things are going, that if God is, if God is real, if God is interested in a relationship, if God is involved somehow in my life, then I think it would be it would be good to confess that there are a lot of disappointments about what you think God should be up to in life for you and what you think maybe God should be connecting where dots should be coming together and creating the reality that you had in mind that you thought you were headed toward. That I think the mustard seed is a remarkably disappointing metaphor. I mean, you think about the Jewish people, when he comes along and he builds this expectation, let me tell you what the kingdom is like. They're thinking, well, we're the kingdom people, so tell us what our future is. Tell us what we can expect tomorrow and the next day and the next year after that. Are you going to restore us? Are you going to kick out the Romans? Are you finally going to make us the people that you prophesied we would be? Will we reign again like they did with David, the king? And he says something really disappointing. I think they were hoping that he would talk about the cedar, this huge, beautiful tree, right? That just skies, like a skyline in a city, the beauty of the cedar. Instead, they got this metaphor about a little seed that at best becomes a medium-sized bush. And he says, that's what it's like. There's this little phrase that I've been kicking around in my soul for the last six months. And it goes something like this, that the kingdom is usually different than you think, but it's always better than you know. Substitute God for kingdom, spirituality, whatever you want there, whatever language you use to talk about God. Jesus often talked about the kingdom I think he did it because he wanted to know that what God is up to is real and tangible. It's not just ethereal and over there and maybe someday, but, but that we should dream about what life could be like now in the real world with God involved. I think the most remarkable thing about the kingdom, according to this parable, is its essential hiddenness. Like when you think about this seed he's talking about, this essential hiddenness. It's interesting, isn't it? I want you to consider this. Throughout the history of the church, God has chosen to hide himself in ordinary things like bread and wine, like oil and water, like you. You realize one of God's greatest dreams in this world 
is to hide God's self in you and to reveal God's self through you where you walk. That's what it means to be spiritual. That's what it means to follow Jesus, is to carry with it. What the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us and grows. And what happens is it's designed eventually. You are designed, you were made to reveal God. You were made in God's image. It's an amazing vision to think about what that means. And as it turns out, I think God is often found most where we are looking for God least. I think that's what this parable sort of helps us discern and begin to reorient our minds about what the kingdom actually looks like. I think if God had a middle name, it might be, it might be something like this. Surprise. <laughs> over and over, Jesus is constantly trying to get through to his disciples that the kingdom of God is, is paradoxically, it's not, it's not where you always think it might be. It's not where you might reason it out to be in your thoughts. You need to rearrange your mind. Let me, let me help you understand what it's like. The kingdom of God is paradoxically, Jesus taught, we're like down is up and first are last and blessed are the meek and take up your cross and turn the other cheek and the greatest among you serve and they who lose their life will find it. Now you're not going to find that in conventional wisdom in the city. You're just not. You're not going to find that at the university. That's, that's not actually what's being diffused. Is that the way to be great is to be humble and to serve and to pick up your cross. Like, who wants to do that? Nobody. Nobody wants to because that's not how victors are made in the city of man. But Jesus says in the kingdom of God, that's how you reign. That's how the economy of God works. That the kingdom of God, it's like this mustard seed. Bring up this graphic, if you will. It's like this, this tiny little seed on the end of a finger, right? It's almost like this Aladdin moment of phenomenal cosmic power and itty bitty living space. Like that sort of dynamic when it comes to the kingdom. And with regard to the parable of the mustard seed in the kingdom, I want to talk about three things briefly this morning. I want to talk about Jesus, and then I want to talk about you, and then I want to talk about we. And I want to sort of filter this. Are you with me? Are we here? We lie. It seems like we're awake this morning. It seems pretty good. Um, the filter I want to apply this morning is your disappointments. I, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to somehow like teach an idealistic picture of what everything, how it's all going to work out just great tomorrow. And I, I want to filter them through your disappointments. So bring that to the table today. Don't feel like you got to come and put your best face forward and everything's doing just fine. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be wrestling with what God means in my life and I can't quite sort it and it seems confusing and shouldn't life be different? And I think, I think if we were honest, if we were all to just take our disappointments and tangibly just place them in, in the same bowl, my guess is that we could overturn the bowl and that it would actually fill up the room. You know, often we come to church and it's like best foot forward, try to make peace, smile, try to get through it. But quite frankly, like there's all of these gaps in our life. And Jesus deeply wants to fill them by rearranging our minds and our expectations about what the kingdom is like. So here's what he says. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. What a cryptic parable. How disappointing. I think Jesus is shaping their expectation of his impending death. So let's talk about Jesus. I think he's wanting to shape, think about what these disciples just heard and the reality of what they're about to experience. Um, 
because they are about to walk into a reality on Good Friday, which was the, the day we remember that Jesus died on the cross. They didn't predict that he was going to do that. They didn't sort of want that to happen. They didn't see that coming. In fact, Peter tried to do everything he could to prevent that from happening because Peter's thinking, surely that's not what God looks like when God shows up in the world, that that would never happen to God. That Jesus, like a seed, when he tells this, is about to be buried in the ground, placed in a tomb where it's dark and it's cold and it's still but I don't think they get it because what happens on that Friday after he's arrested, they scatter. They go all over the region. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do when things don't turn out the way we thought they would, should, or could? In our disappointment, we go back to doing what we used to do. We return to our old patterns and our old habits. And we say things in our hearts like, this faith isn't working for me anymore. I think, I think that Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, I think that Friday, the, the disciples must have experienced the greatest disappointment of their entire lives because Jesus did not fulfill their expectation. He left a gap. And that Saturday, the next day, before resurrection, I think it probably was the greatest spiritual hangover in human history. You had all this hope, all this imagination, all this, finally, our Messiah has come. And then he's hanging on a cross and no one saw that coming. And I think they're asking themselves questions, maybe similar to what you've asked before. Questions like, what happened? And are we delusional? And what are we going to do next? I think this parable Jesus tells is first and foremost about Jesus. Before we get anywhere with it and wield it into our own lives and think about the implications, I think Jesus is telling a parable about Jesus because Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is proclaiming himself here. I think he is like a mustard seed. I want to show you something. Who are my statistics people in the room? Can I just get a show of hands? Who are people who love to work with numbers in history? One of you. Awesome. <laughs> this is for you, man. This is for you. This is your moment. So soak it in. 33 AD, go to this, if you will. 33 AD, let's imagine it's Holy Saturday, right after Good Friday, right? Before Resurrection Sunday. And it's not to say Peter and the disciples didn't love him. It's just to say that they were done following. There was nothing to follow. It was over. Case closed. We lost. Zero followers of the crucified Christ in the tomb, cold and dark. Zero percentage of the Roman population. By 180, something interesting happened. About 10,000 followers. 10,000. Now, this is, this is after he died. Ostensibly, purportedly, supposedly was risen. Is risen. So this is 70 years later-ish. 10,000, for some of you, that's like a Twitter dream to have 10,000 followers, right? <laughs> 10,000 followers, 70 years after this guy died. You'd think it would be like, well, that's over unless something happened. Be interesting. That was 0.0017% of the Roman population. 
Now, typically what happens when revolutions aren't real, when people feel, felt deceived, when there's disillusionment and disenchantment, the, the more time that laps, the more your movement decreases. But what happens by 200 AD is Jesus, the crucified Savior, had 200,000 followers in the Roman world. Now, that's 0.3%. 0.36% of the Roman population. Now, by 250, interesting trend, a million followers in the Roman region. Now, I'll have you know, it was illegal. Rome did not sit well with this, especially as the church began to love the poor better than the government did. There was jealousy. There was a wanting to squash this thing out before it really gets started. 2.5%. Now, how do you account for that if there's no resurrection? That's tough to explain. But then you get to 300, and there are 6 million followers. Now, this is odd. What's happening is trend, which should be decreasing, 10%. On Good Friday, Jesus is buried in the ground. But check this out. By the 5th century, the way of Jesus isn't just 10%. It becomes the dominant faith of the Roman empire. Even the state comes to a point to say, we will bow before this crucified God. Now there's much to be said about that, but let's not forget the parable. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. This little seed called Jesus of Nazareth, born in a feeding trough. You know it's what a manger is, right? It's a trough where the animals eat out of born in a feeding trough, raised in a no-name town among the ordinary poor, buried after an excruciating death, has changed the course of human history. And 2,000 years later, we at the ends of the earth are the fruits of his resurrection. It seems that despite the best efforts of secular humanism or atheism or New Ageism, or any other ism, that this Jesus, no matter what you believe about him, this little seed isn't going away. Peter Chrysologus in the 5th century Ravenna, he said this. Now this is, this is incredible. That Christ is the kingdom of heaven, sown like a mustard seed in the garden of the virgin's womb. He grew up into the tree of the cross whose branches stretch across the world. Now you talk about a paradoxical image of what Jesus is up to. This tiny mustard seed that they buried, thought it's over, ends up being the most fruitful person in human history. How do you explain that? The kingdom is usually different than you think, but it's always better than you know. Jesus, which brings us to you. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in a garden. Now, let me be honest here. I've been at this pastor thing long enough to know that many of you feel some real level of disappointment about where you are in your spiritual journey. 
maybe began 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, five weeks ago, five days ago, that maybe there was a sort of expectation that you had about how things were going to be now, and then the reality hit X amount of time later, and you have this sort of gap, and you hear these stories, and you know these tales, and you read this text, and you think to myself, you think to yourself, like, what happened? Is there more? Should, should I be experiencing something more? Maybe that's you. Like, a lot of, a few really high highs, but a lot of really low lows. That if God speaks, I don't hear much from God, it seems. If God heals, why haven't I felt much from God? If God transforms, then why am I still caught up in the same cycles and patterns that I've been wrestling with since I was perhaps a teenager? Or maybe for you, you feel like your walk with God has just felt beige and neutral and flat. And there's a disappointment that you have with a lack of what we would call progress. Thank you to the enlightenment for that word, right? And I want to speak into this for a moment that I hope opens up something for us that can become light and joy and good news. And here's the thing. If you're in a place where you feel like, I just, there's just a disappointment that I have. Maybe it's with God. Maybe it's with yourself. Maybe it's with this thing called church. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but there's just disappointment that I can't cover up. I'll just simply say this. I think, I think part of our hangup is that we are caught in a moment where what, what happens is this. We import our culture and our society into our expectation of what everything should be like. I'll give you an example. We import a technological and post-industrial worldview into Christian spirituality. And, and why that's unhelpful is because we're used to cranking out rapid results. We live in a world of algorithms and rates of return and widgets and productivity and TPS reports. All of this where there's all of this stuff happening all the time at the speed of light, it seems. Even our bandwidth with the internet, if it's slow. Do you remember the days of AOL and dial-up? Can you imagine putting the paste back in the tube? We, I don't think we could do it. I don't think we could go back to that moment. Like, that's just the world that we live in. And all the while, Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he's constantly using agricultural imagery. And you might say, well, yeah, it's because they didn't have the internet. But I think there is something to be said about reclaiming the kind of, the kind of expectation we have about God's work in our life. To reclaim an understanding of time and commitment and faithful watering and agriculture and taking Jesus at his word here. And I'll say this, this might be the most important thing of the morning. It's this, there's an art to being Christian. Um, our God's an artist, by the way. You are the work of God's artistry and we are made in God's image, which means that we, like God, are artists. We're designed to create. We're designed to cultivate. We're designed to have canvases where we see things come to life. This is what industry is all about. And I think the art of being Christian is doing two things simultaneously. First of all, I think there's something opening for us when we understand that faith is an art. It's not like a thing. It's not like a, a thing that you plug in here and here's the results you're going to get every time. It's not like that. Just like a marriage isn't always like that. And this thing God is up to with creation is like a marriage. And so 
two things have to happen that we have to expand our understanding if we're going to walk with God in this world for the long haul. It's this. The art of being Christian is, number one, to start taking yourself so seriously. Why? Because God takes you seriously. You've been given a new identity that's been received, not achieved. It's been by, by the grace of God. You've been adopted as sons and daughters of the kingdom. You did not achieve this. Christ has earned it and we believe it through him. It's an incredible, incredible privilege. You don't have to achieve it. You don't have to do all the right things to finally get God to love you and to like you. Jesus is all that we need to say God is for us. And through him, I am a son or a daughter of God. Thank you, God, for grace. Thank you. But the second thing is this. We have to start taking ourselves so seriously while at the same time, we have to stop taking ourselves so seriously. Many of you came in this morning weighed down in shame, in self-accusation, and all sorts of disappointments about yourself, about how you can't measure up, about how you can't get it right, all sorts of self-condemnation, all sorts of scorekeeping and penalty boxes that you've put yourself into and legalistic expectations. Don't get me wrong, like I'm all for obedience. I'm all for walking with God. But all of this stuff that weighs us down in a chronic shame that we feel like we can't get out of, only now we have to feel like we can earn our way out of it. And that's just not the economy God is living in. That's not what we've been invited to. This, this strange art of being Christian, understanding the meaning of grace and patience and time and faithfulness, it seems that God is very comfortable taking time to make all things new. And that begins with you. And I think agricultural metaphors can open this up. Listen, this is why we gather every single week because we know that by the time we have finished lunch at Winberry's, we've probably forgotten our true identities in Christ. We come every Sunday to remember the story that we've been invited into, to proclaim the gospel and to reclaim the gospel in our lives. Listen, this is why we immerse ourselves in Scripture throughout the week, because it calls us back to story. It reminds us what story that we're really a part of. This is why we have small groups, life groups throughout the year to be immersed in community that can remind us who we are at our low moments. This is why we take communion. And here's the thing, because when we take communion once a month, it means that no matter how joyful or how neutral or how gut-wrenching your week has been, God has already set a table of grace to feast on even before you set foot in this building. In other words, God said, you haven't even showed up yet and I'm already setting a table of grace for you. No matter what your week has been like, just know that I want to give you life. That's the kind of reality that the mustard seed reminds us of, that over the course of time, like the physical growth of a child that cannot be measured day by day, but only year after year, so our spiritual maturity is a slow but constant pursuit toward the likeness of Jesus in the ways of community 
and justice and peacemaking. Christian spirituality, listen, it's more about faithfulness than productivity. The fruit will come, but water the soil of your life and the fruit will take care of itself. I promise you that. I promise you that will be the case. I like to think of spirituality not as like a circle, but as like this cone. I know some of you feel like you're in the same spot you've always been, but I will tell you that there's something about this ascendancy on a cone that you don't realize that when you are in the same spot, you're actually, though you might be experiencing the same reality, you are in a different place than you were the year before, than the year before, and then the year before. And over the course of time, if you stay the course, your life begins to bear fruit. It's like a tea bag. Constantly, we're constantly pulling the bag of our life out and putting it in all these other cups. Imagine if you spent the rest of your days immersed in the way of Jesus. Imagine what that kind of life would bloom into and would look like. Be dense. It'd be worth tasting. It would be quite good. And so we conclude with we. Jesus and you and we. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. Let's finish by talking about our disappointment with church. A lot of people love to talk about that one. It's like a popular topic today in the blogger world, if anyone's still doing that. Um, Disappointment with church. When church didn't fill your expectation. Well, let's readjust our expectation here. Um, First and foremost, the church is not the kingdom. So let's take the pressure off there, right? The church is full of people that are saying, yeah, we're, we, do, we do not have it all together. We don't have the answers. All we know is the grace of God is really good and we need it. And we find life there every day. That's our confession. That's about all we know is that Jesus is Messiah and God is love and has invited us into an amazing, amazing world that God has invited us to renew with God. Listen to these words by Jean Vanier. Beautiful, beautiful words on the church. And tell me if this doesn't fit your grid somewhere. Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel surrounded by saints and heroes or at least most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater the idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. You see the expectation reality gap here? If people can manage to get through this second period, they come to a third phase, that of realism and of true commitment. They no longer see each other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but firmly planted on earth. And they're ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. Listen, one of the greatest disciplines for the church can be contained in one word. Stay. Some of you have been tracking with Renaissance for some time now. And there's been some really amazing moments and maybe some disappointments along the way as well. Stay. Remain. 
be a part of building this community, especially for the incredible season that I think is ahead for this church. Stay, invest, plug in, do more than attend. Actually go beyond and be the church with these people. Because at best, if we can just sort of like tinker with your expectations for a second, the church is that people who are equipped to reveal glimpses of the kingdom because of their surrendered lives. That's what we're designed to do. That this is not the kingdom. We don't have that licked. We're not like perfect in that. But we can be that place, those people where the kingdom becomes glimpsed here and there. Where it's, oh, that reminds me of God because God is generous. She reminds me of God because God is peace. He reminds me of God because God is humble. They remind me of God because God is love, a place of generosity and grace and forgiveness and worship and radical concern for the poor, the voiceless, and the underside of human history. Stay. I'll close with this. When I think of all the world's tragedies, I think about the church. I think about, when I think of the world's tragedies and I think about the church, I think of um, tragedies in the world happening today like systemic oppression and exploitation and human trafficking and racism and violence and poverty. And I'll think to myself, what difference does it make that the church exists? I mean, are we just here kind of circling the wagons? We just kind of do our thing. It's the same thing. We go, we attend. Does it really actually make any kind of difference? What are we doing here? Every, um, every Good Friday at the church I've been pastoring for the last five years, we do this, this weird ancient, well, it's not ancient, 17th century sort of rendition of what's called Tenambra. And it's an old French sort of monastic service. And imagine just like, we have thousands that come. And it's basically a funeral dirge for Jesus. It's not exciting. It's not entertaining. Uh, there's no lights. It's all candles. And it starts with this, this, this a cappella choir of about 10 people that just process in with a lantern. And imagine it just being pitch black. And they light these lamps. And then we read readings and we sing a few songs. And after every reading, candles are snuffed until the last candle is snuffed out and it's dark, and we dismiss, and we go home. This last year, we added a new wrinkle to it, and um, we decided to process out with the choir, singing this simple song, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. And we invited all of these people, if they felt like comfortable, no pressure, to follow the choir out, because we're going to walk the entire block with this sad funeral dirge and yet oddly find hope in it because we know where the cross leads to. It leads to resurrection. So what would it look like if we had thousands of people walking a square block of New York singing this hopeful song about a funeral? And I'll never forget, I get sort of in the middle of the congregation and um, and I'm just one of them. And we walk outside, and you walk out onto 22nd, and you're singing this song. And it's like when you walk out, the air gets absorbed, or the words get absorbed into the atmosphere. Sirens, conversations, you round the corner, there's bars and restaurants. 
And you begin to think to yourself, like when we were in the church, just the, the songs were reverberating off the cathedral walls and it was amazing. And we felt like, wow, isn't this wonderful? And then you go outside and it just gets sucked into the atmosphere. You think, what difference does it make? What difference does it make that we sing this song on this square block in the 21st century, all these years later? What difference does this testimony make? What difference does this march make? I don't know, but I know this. God, throughout history, seems to love working with very small things in order to bring about great renewal. You are the evidence of that. You are the fruit of the crucified God who was risen three days after the tomb. So, may you consider placing all your trust in Jesus, that he is the kingdom of God. And may you believe in the seed of the Holy Spirit that comes to live in your life slowly making all things new. And may we grow up together to reveal more of the kingdom of God to this part of the world. Because the kingdom is usually different than you think, but it's always better than you know. Let's pray. God, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for our time. I thank you for your presence. Moses pleaded with you, above all things, that your presence would go with him. So as we leave this place, we, like Moses, plead with you that your presence will go with us. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, what a joy to be with you again this week. Have a great week and stay cool.